Our Vacation Bible School theme this year was What If? And so as we explored the questions that go along with that theme, like what if, what if God was bigger? What if God was beyond? What if God were nearer? We accompanied each of those big questions with stories. And so today's story, the feeding of the 5,000, was the story that we used uh, when we were considering this question, what if with God there is enough? And this is the way that we told that story this summer. There once was a man who did such wonderful things and said such amazing things that people followed him. They followed him wherever he went and they asked about um, the kingdom of God and they sought healing from him and they followed him even to the lonely places. And this story, this story that I'm about to share with you was told four times once in each of the four Gospels. And so I wonder what is so important about this story. When Jesus learned about the death of his cousin, he got into a boat and sailed to a lonely place. But the crowds saw him from the shore and followed him. And so when Jesus got there to the lonely place, to that deserted place, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them and he went into the crowds. And those who were sick, he healed. And those who were in search of something more, he was with them. And when evening came, his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a lonely place, and there is nowhere for these people to find dinner. Don't you think we should send them home so that they can find something to eat? And Jesus said to them, do not send them away. Bring them to me. And so the crowd gathered around Jesus, and he had them sit in the grass. And the disciples had five loaves and two fish. And Jesus took them and blessed them and broke them, gave them to the disciples to give to the people. And all ate, and all were satisfied, and there was enough. And when all had eaten, the disciples went around and collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. And 5,000 men were fed, not to mention the women and the children who were there. May God bless the hearing of this holy story. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Snipes family is notorious for snacking. When I was a child, I would come home from school and would have uh, tortillas and salsa at family gatherings. The most important part of the meal was not the roast, but the snacks. Someone had to be in charge of the snacks. So I keep snacks in my office. If you're wondering, if you're ever having a snack emergency, please come find me. 
I have snacks in my car. My in-laws recently put me in charge of snacks for family gatherings because, well, I'm going to have snack anxiety if snacks are not properly taken care of. So I might as well be the one in control. And you know those situations where you go to a restaurant and you order soup and they give you those little two saltine crackers in a little plastic package? Those go straight into my purse. Those two little crackers can move the needle from hangry meltdown to calm, cool, and collected. And it's not just me that needs the snacks, I promise. Sometimes my co-pilot needs saltines too. And I tell you this in the context of this feeding of the 5,000 because this is exactly the kind of situation I do not want to get myself into. Really, Jesus? No snacks? You've been with these people all day and you didn't notice that dinner was approaching? I would have seen the crowd from miles away early in the day and thought, all right, how are we going to feed these people? I'm a little exasperated when I read this story about Jesus, just like the disciples. Send them home. Let them go figure out snacks. Dinner for 12 can be an ordeal, let alone a party of 100. Scale that up to 5,000, and you need Soldier Field to help you do the food prep and the planning. So really, I'm impressed with Jesus that he wasn't worried about this all along. And I'm also impressed by Jesus' compassion when he got there in the first place. Because he wasn't there to greet the crowds in the first place. He was there because he had just learned of his cousin's death. And on top of being a devastating family loss, the death of Jesus' cousin John was also a testimony to the fact that Jesus himself would be killed. Because John and Jesus were preaching that same message of hope to the hopeless and strength to the powerless the kind of message that threatens the likes of Herod. So Jesus has every right to set out into a lonely place, to this deserted place, and to be by himself. He needed the time. He needed to collect his thoughts and to pray and to discern. But instead, the crowd sees him and follows him. As soon as he sets foot on that shoreline in this, quote, lonely Place, he is no longer alone. The lonely place is actually the crowded place. My thought at the moment, if this were me, I would get right back in that boat and head to the next closest lonely place up the road. Shake off the crowds. Give me some time. But Jesus walks straight in. He walks straight into the crowd. He heals them. He responds to their need. And when dinner approaches... He knows exactly how to throw a dinner party. The first century equivalent to meat and potatoes is fish and bread. Simple and calorie-rich and familiar, all are fed. This is a classic uh, upside-down gospel. The lonely place is the crowded place. The exhausted healer has room to heal one more. The deserted place where you would think there would be no food, has become the place of bread with excess to share. There is an absurd amount of abundance. Baskets full of leftovers are collected. And for me, from the vantage point of the 21st century, the story brings a certain amount of discomfort. 
Almost 40% of food in the U.S. is wasted. Uneaten food in landfills accounts for more than 20% of our nation's methane gas production, a major greenhouse gas contributing to climate change, and more than a third of what we send to local landfills is food scraps. We see so much food come across our plates, we hardly know what to do. I went to a restaurant this week that admits that absurdity of abundance up front. Eat with us, they say, and we'll send twice as much home with you on purpose, some for today and some for tomorrow. Every 5,000-person dinner party in America ends with baskets full of leftovers. And so Jesus' miracle holds little value in our food-saturated lives. And that's what's so intriguing, I think, about this idea that the Bible is really just one long, ancient, epic food fight. I was compelled by this idea. Scholar Walter Brueggemann claims that the Bible is an ancient food fight about who can eat with whom, who is invited to the table, who is excluded, who has enough, and who is allowed to collect and have control over what is left over, over the abundance. In the beginning, in Genesis, God calls all creation good and there is enough. It's a simple vision. Care for this place, work and rest and live. But then chaos seeps in, a crack in the foundation of all that is good, and the vision becomes painted. There are some years of famine and some years of plenty, and so it becomes important to start planning ahead so that the famine doesn't cause a crisis for people who are vulnerable all across the Fertile Crescent. Storing up grain in the book of Genesis becomes an act of compassion. And it is an act of compassion, well, until it isn't. Because then, in the next book of the Bible, in Exodus, there's the Pharaoh. If you look up hashtag Pharaoh on Instagram, it is just all gold. It's just gold picture after gold picture of Egyptian artifacts from pharaohs. Pharaoh is the ultimate villain in this epic food fight, the one who collects all the resources for himself. And the slaves in Egypt are the ones that we claim as Christians, as our spiritual grandparents. And those slaves are held hostage by Pharaoh because his propensity to store grain moved from compassion to greed. For Pharaoh, storing grain was not an act of compassion, but instead an act of greed and ultimately of enslavement. Because you remember our ancestors who were enslaved were asked to make bricks. And bricks are just one more step in that absurd hoarding of grain, in that epic food fight. Pharaoh needs more bricks, not just to build more grain silos, but to build actual cities where his grain silos will be. So he's got so many grain silos that he needs cities to manage those, kind of like when you get hotels in the game of Monopoly. Pharaoh had so many grain silos that he needed this slave economy to prop up the abundance of grain that he purposely and it dynamically enslaved uh, the, the people of God, our spiritual ancestors. 
And do the slaves eat well in this world of stored grain, in this world of abundance? Of course not. Pharaoh has a monopoly on food, and he is the one who has dis- decides who gets enough and who gets more. So when you fast forward, you have this story of slavery, and there's the long, drawn-out drama of the escape from slavery, and then the people of God end up in the desert, in the wilderness. Moses leads them out from under Pharaoh's control, and they're in the wilderness. And so the place that should be abundance, Pharaoh's land, is actually the place of scarcity. And the place that should be the place of scarcity, the wilderness, is actually the place of abundance, where God offers manna, bread from heaven, every morning, enough for all and more so. So Walter Brueggemann claims the Bible is this epic food fight where we see time and time again that the need to control outweighs trust and that the fear of scarcity is met with the reality of abundance. And we, I think, as Christians in this epic food fight are given permission to let go of whatever it is that holds us to Pharaoh, to walk away from whatever enslaves us, to dislocate ourselves from the ones who hold up a fear of scarcity at the expense of others. Whether it's in our personal lives or our families or our workplaces or our community or on a national or global scale, this epic tale of a drawn-out food fight gives us permission to place our faith in God instead of Pharaoh. We can walk away. We can let go. We can, with some struggle, disengage from the systems of injustice in which we participate. Because we're still in the midst of this epic food fight, the myth of scarcity is still a myth that we live with, and the question of who is allowed to eat with whom continues to dominate our global landscape. Former Raiders coach Tom Flores was one of the first Latino football icons to grace the national stage and the first uh, Latino quarterback. He won four Super Bowl champions, the only player to do so both as a coach and as a player. And he knows what it means to be part of a national food fight. When he joined the Raiders, he was on the first uh, team of the Oakland Raiders, people were still asking, now, where is Oakland again? And so when he flew from California to the American South for the first time, his team had to make some decisions, eat together as a team or separate. Participants as a, participate as a team in what was at the time a national food fight or stand individually and be divided. When, when the Oakland Raiders played in southern cities, that's where they really learned the world of prejudice. One week they were in a town outside of Dallas and they were not going to let the black players on his team eat in the same dining room as the rest of the team. They were gonna have to eat separately. And so the coach announced that the team was leaving We will eat together at all costs. We are a team. We are sticking together. And as the coach got up to walk the team out of the restaurant, all of a sudden, when the Oakland Raiders were about to leave the building, the dining room suddenly, miraculously, 
changed its policy and let everyone stay and eat together. It's, again, it's an example from maybe 50 years ago now, but it's a story that continues to hold power over the ways that we build community and seek justice in our country even now. What tables have you been excluded from? And maybe more poignantly, what tables have you and I been served at that others have been excluded from? And what does it mean for all of us Christians around the globe to celebrate the wide open, all our welcome table fellowship that Jesus is pushing us to see? Because ultimately, Jesus is not up against Pharaoh in this story. Jesus is up against Herod. Five times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has to leave town just as Herod enters the picture, and this is no different. Herod kills Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, at a dinner party. And it is at a dinner party then, just in the next chapter, that Jesus pushes us, or that, 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 that dinner party with Herod pushes Jesus out into this desert, into this lonely place that he goes to. Herod had gathered some of the rich and famous and powerful over for a decadent dinner that ended with dancing. And in order to say thank you for this dancer, Herod says that she can have anything up to half of his kingdom, in fact. Any wish can be granted. And so she leans over to her mother, this dancer, to deliberate on what to ask for. It's not every day that someone so powerful says, you can have up to half my kingdom. And so together, the mother and the daughter decide the best ask is this, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's hard to know if the mother and dancer were being absurd or exaggerating. Maybe they were just trying to see how far they could push this request. But ultimately, Herod, who has already imprisoned John and knew John was a threat, decides, hey, why not? What have I got to lose? John has been a problem for him all along. And so Herod delivers exactly what she asks for, John's literal head on a literal platter. So that's why it's not hard to see that there's no accident in placing these two stories right next to each other. The feeding of the 5,000 is directly connected to the death of John. It's no accident that Herod hosts a dinner party that ends with death beyond his guest's wildest imagination, whereas Jesus hosts a dinner party that ends with abundance beyond his dinner guest's imagination. The laughable request of the dancer to bring John's head on a platter is met with the laughable request of Jesus to feed 5,000 with just a handful of loaves of bread. The horror of Herod's table is placed right next to the surprise and the delight of Jesus's table. Bread in the gospel always means more than just food. In this case, we are called toward a creative possibility, life and abundance. We are called to a faithful obedience, choose Jesus's table out in the lonely place instead of Herod's well-appointed but nightmarish table. The Gospel of Matthew is written to the church, and here we see again the church is always in the desert, and the church is always hungry. 
And the church is always surrounded by a world of deep and sometimes monstrous hungers that are out of sync with the goodness and the mercy to which God calls us. One person noted that the church is never a group of like-minded people who want to just rally around a worthy cause. Instead, the church is a peculiar people, called by God and sent into the lonely places, surprised again and again by the abundance that God can, uh, can provide. So I wonder how that might be true for us. How are we, this motley crew of people gathered here today, that peculiar people, and what lonely places are each of us individually and collectively called toward together? And what surprises, again and again, under the banner of God's abundance, might we encounter with enough for all and more to share? God's abundance is there. We just need to trust it. Please pray with me. Holy God, show us your way. Show us the way toward your life of abundance, a life in sync with your goodness and your mercy. In the name of Jesus, bread of life, bread of heaven. Amen.